Dear Diary, tomorrow is my 16th birthday. Maybe it's better if I don't make it. Who writes that? An isolated teen? Disengaged. Struggling in school? Outcast? Broken family, perhaps? No. I wrote that. And when I found my old journal last year, that entry punched me in the gut. Because I had forgotten. Forgotten that I wrote that. Fifteen-year-old me. Varsity athlete. 4.6 GPA because 4.0 was not good enough. Youth mentor. Volunteer with a circle of great friends and a loving family, married parents. I wrote that because I could not explain the sadness that came in like a flash flood in quiet moments, or the confusion that got caught in my throat as I looked at my life and thought, I have no reason to be unhappy. I saw my privilege. But instead of gratitude, I felt disgust for myself, for my depression, although I did not have that word for it at the time. How could I, someone so privileged, be so unhappy? I did not understand my own hurt. But when I hurt, I hated it. What is wrong with me? That I have everything I need and yet have such despair. So ungrateful. Stupid. If I had everything the world told me I needed to be happy, and I was still this miserable, what was the point in going on? But who was I to complain when the world was full of suffering so much greater than my own? So I kept my mouth shut. We think we know what mental illness looks like. That we could point out depression in a crowd. But our list of signs and symptoms are so limited. We forget about the overachievers. The ones who have it all together on the outside might be unraveling on the inside. Those who demand perfection from themselves often reject their own humanity. I was not allowed to struggle. I was not allowed to hurt. I was not allowed to grieve. I was not allowed to be weak. So struggle, hurt, grief, weakness were no longer singular emotions to be felt, but ammunition for self-hatred. See, today, I know how to give myself grace in those dark places. I am not disgusted by my own sadness, but deeply intrigued Today, I know I will never be rid of pain, but I refuse to wade through it by myself. I know how to ask for help, that I'm never, ever, ever really alone. Today, I make mental health a priority, but then, if I could talk to that girl, that 15-year-old me, looking towards sweet 16 with a quiet dread. This is what I'd say. Hi, love. I see you.
I see your sadness. I feel sad sometimes, too. I see your confusion. We will always be learning about ourselves, the world, and how it all fits together. I see your loneliness. Connection is more than just having people around you, even though it's scary to face really knowing yourself and being known. You might think you have no reason to be unhappy. You can't justify your own feelings, and so you hate them. But there is a reason, darling. A reason for all the pain. You are a loving, empathetic, self-discovering soul. You are human. And hurt? That's a human thing. It's absolutely 100% without a doubt normal, and it will never fully go away. There is nothing wrong with you. You don't need to avoid those dark, confusing, uncomfortable places anymore. We are in this together. Privilege is not a prescription for pain, my darling girl. And strength can never eliminate all weakness. But there is so much to learn in that pain. There is so much magic in your weakness. You are not broken for feeling what you feel, but you are brave for expressing it. And the world is ready for it, dear Sarah. So show up with your pain. Show up with your joy. Show up with the whole delightful explosion of you. It does not have to make sense. It never quite will. But the nonsense is the very best part. Happy birthday. I love you. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, the podcast where we share real stories of mental disorder to overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. written by Sarah Grove, the editor of Raw Food Magazine and creator of Daily Happy Actions, which you can find at dailyhappyactions.com. And today we are back with another great episode. We have someone today who's going to be of practical help for everyone. She is a therapist for a living. She works with youth and with groups and families as well, with individuals, with all kinds of different people who need her. And the people we've had so far on the podcast have really spoken to how valuable sharing and therapy and openness have been. You heard Kelly Galpin last week talk about how whether or not you're on medication or doing anything else for yourself, therapy is really valuable and helpful in conjunction with all those things. And uh, almost everyone we've talked to has seen the value in therapy or at least the potential it has. And so we're really excited to talk with Devin about everything she sees as a therapist and her perspective on mental disorder and the work that she does. 
And before we get into that, uh, we just want to take a second and talk about how our perspective has changed because this podcast has definitely made us think and reevaluate everything we're talking about. So yeah. I guess, Laura, how is this? Uh, how, how have things shifted for you? Well, man, um, well, I'm not going to lie. When I first, when we first decided to do the podcast, I thought, oh, you know, like 100 people might listen. And then like 5,000 people downloaded it and I kind of freaked <laughs> out. Um, but so that was strange to have my story out there for so many people to listen to um, and so many people. So even just doing that, people in my life came up to me and were like, oh, I didn't even know that. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm so sorry. And so that was kind of cool. But then the flood of emails started coming and that it was hard for me at first because I I just felt kind of helpless like listening to all these stories and just feeling like oh my gosh I can't I'm not an expert I can't help these people um but slowly I think I've started to feel like I'm part of a community of people where we have disorder all around us and I don't think Mm -hmm. anybody escapes it um so that's been really cool to kind of come to that conclusion but how about you are you surprised with you know, how this has gone or has your perspective changed? Yeah. Well, similar to you, I had expectations going in and I wanted to dedicate the podcast to fighting stigma and making people feel allowed to talk about this stuff. And so I did start to see how that could happen or have have that potential where when we started, I also had people reach out to me in my life and I even had a close family member reach out and say that, she had been dealing with all these things I had no idea about. Someone I see twice a year who seems perfectly fine talking about very serious, dark things that she'd been hiding. And so I think even the initial outset of the podcast has, has at least freed some people. I hope it's freed some people to talk and to feel open. And beyond that, it's a lot of ideas have connected for me where there were all these disjoint thoughts I had about disorder that have seemed to run together where you talk about connection and how it can be very therapeutic. It's been interesting talking to all our guests about the relationship between connection and openness and how often the first step, and you'll hear about this today with Devin, the first step often is just openness with oneself and willingness to talk and get the help that someone needs. Um, and it's been fascinating hearing about both traditional ways of getting help and alternatives, whether you're dressing up in a baseball costume and being a mascot or going to improv class, or whether it's just working on relationships within your family. Uh, everyone has had an interesting perspective that I think has brought a lot of these ideas together into a working picture of the complicated phenomenon of disorder. Yeah. Um, that really I just want to understand better. And so as much as I hope to bring something of value for you all listening, I'm learning as well and getting a lot out of this myself. Yeah, I, I think AJ Mass said this. Um, everybody wears a mask. And as I've listened to more stories and read more stories and talked to people outside of the podcast who've been listening, it's so true. I, I We yeah. all put on this happy face we don't talk about this. And so just talking about it, um, I feel a lot more comfortable talking about, talking to total strangers about this topic. And I think for me, the stigma is totally going away. It's like totally normal Mm -hmm. to talk about this. Um, Do you feel the same way? That's awesome. I think I've always been really open, maybe even 
too open for my own good that I have been comfortable sharing things um, pretty freely. So uh, it's definitely, I think it's helped my inner monologue and appraisal of that sharing where we've talked in the past about the relationship between how we judge others and how we judge ourselves. I I think I've made even more strides in self-acceptance and in seeing these things in others and accepting them because ultimately we want to get rid of the stigma and we want to, beyond that, we want to normalize it. We want to express that disorder is a part of life, that everyone falls on these spectrums or deals with different symptoms. Um, There's legislation going through in the UK I'm excited about that deals with focusing less on actual diagnoses and more on just the symptoms people are experiencing. And I really like that approach. Uh, talking about just us suffering from really normal human ailments or feelings that we all have at varying degrees. And it is useful sometimes to lump them into what you might call a disorder. If they follow a certain pattern, it might aid our understanding. But ultimately, I don't think it's the conditions or the labels that will define disorder. I think it's, it's an exploration of human existence that we're learning more and more about because label or not it's a real person beneath that label right right and that's what really matters yeah no absolutely and we're really happy with what we've gotten out of the podcast we hope you're getting as much out of it and we really appreciate when you've expressed that to us that we've gotten some tweets the last week that have been really encouraging from kim bobbitt from mark fians or a few that jump out yeah, thank you guys. And and I've got some people connect with me on Instagram um, or even Facebook. or It's just kind of cool. That's the cool thing about social media. I think people can connect with you in, in many different ways. So, um, But don't forget that you can also connect with us on our website, redeemingdisorder.wordpress.com. Uh, we still love getting your emails. So we look forward to keeping hearing from you and especially hearing from you about what we have for you now, which we'll go ahead and get into. So please enjoy our interview with Devin. Hey everyone, we're here today with Devin Terry, a licensed counselor working in Nashville with the Youth in Crisis at the Oasis Center. She's also coincidentally my neighbor and friend, and we're really lucky to have her because she just had a baby. Um, So welcome Devin and thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited. Yeah, thanks so much, Devin. We're really excited to hear from a counselor like yourself, uh, as a lot of the people we've talked to are talking about either personal struggles or struggles of their family members. So it'll be Mm -hmm. good to get that perspective of someone who hears it all from the other side of the couch. Yeah, the other side of the couch, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess, um, first of all, maybe you could describe what your day-to-day job is like um, to everyone. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Oasis Center is a youth serving agency in Nashville that has been around for um, quite a while. I think the late 60s, early 70s. Um, but the part that I work in um, is the shelter program. So we work with um, young people who are um, in some kind of crisis. And that um, oftentimes is that they are not chronically or they're chronically unhoused, not stably housed, um, mm-hmm. or they have run away. Um, but it, it also just as frequently means that they are having any other kind of crisis, whether it's mental health or um, like family crisis or um, just interpersonal stuff or school stuff. So really it, it ranges kind of across the board with whatever can look like a crisis to a teenager 
which is a lot of things. I think, you know, that's kind of what we, what we see. So, um, my role there is I'm the senior clinical therapist. So I have a client caseload and then I also, um, supervise the other therapists. So we, um, we have, we kind of, we have 12 beds, so there's not a ton of clients. So we really get to focus on the ones that we're working with, um, at that time. They come to the shelter for two weeks, um, or until they have a safe place to leave to. Okay. And then we do, you know, group individual and family work with them. So oh wow, that's pretty cool. And then after they Got leave it. the shelter, if they're able, um, transportation wise and things to get back, then they come back once a week for continued counseling to just kind of keep the situation as stable as we can. So my day to day is kind of different every day. I definitely see my my clients and things like that and meet with young people. But it all there also can be times where I'm out in the residential space playing just dance with them or going on a walk or. <laughs> you know, doing yeah. networking in the community or, um, clinical meetings. So it's kind of a lot of different things, but how do young people find it? How do they find you at the Oasis center? Yeah, we get a lot of, so, um, because we've been a part of Nashville for so long, I think they're like, we even have like, um, young people whose parents were at the shelter or whose you know, much older siblings were at the shelter. So there's a lot of word of mouth. Um, but we also get mm-hmm. a lot of referrals from, um, the juvenile justice system, like the det- detention center, um, and court liaisons mm-hmm. and police officers and also even stuff like teachers or just other community members. And a lot of times parents and young people contact us on their own. Um, just they look up like, I need help for my, you know, crazy 15 year old. And somehow on Google, yeah. they link to Oasis Center. And so we get a lot of just like self-referral as well, but kind of everywhere. Um, we get referrals from kind of everywhere. What is it like meeting with somebody when they're in a crisis? Because um, that's a pretty yeah. unique time in their life yeah. and, and situation. It's kind of funny because <laughs> I did my internship in college at Oasis. And then um, it's kind of the only place I wanted to be. So I also worked there part time mm. and then eventually full time. So I'm kind of like, I don't know what it's almost like to meet with someone who's yeah. not crisis. <laughs> I was yeah. It's kind of like how it. many people who come to Oasis, they their parents might have gone and that's how they knew it. And it's sort of all yeah. uh, or was your exposure throughout as well. Yeah. And crisis can kind of be generational, I think. So sometimes it's like a family stays in crisis for a long time and they kind of, it's like their norm almost. So Mm. it's kind of interesting. Mm, But yeah, meeting with people in crisis is interesting. And I think the first thing is just kind of like, um, just like establishing a connection with people. And, um, and I think dealing with what feels like the biggest crisis for them at first, you know, so that they can, they can feel okay to move on to anything else or focus on other areas. But Sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely can be hard to constantly um, do crisis work because it's yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> things no one ever comes to see when things are going well. Yeah. yeah. Well, what what kind? So it sounds like you do individual counseling, and mm-hmm. then you do family counseling, and then group counseling. And I'm yes. just curious, um, where do you see? I mean, I guess they are all beneficial, and that's why you do it yeah. all. But what are your favorites, and, and why? And what's kind of the process? Do you start with individual first? Yeah, I think it's really important to meet with the young person. So my identified client is the young person. Um, so my, I think that's um, a really good, important place to start because I want to understand what is happening for them, and they're the ones that are um, that are in this situation that's you know mm-hmm. that means that we're meeting mm-hmm. together. Just see their point of view. Yeah, so I really want to understand from them what they see as what's happening. But then I think it's equally important depending on who um, is involved in their life. So whatever that family looks like to them to kind of 
um, depending on the situation, of course, because safety can be an issue. But if family is a safe thing or if people that they live with are a safe thing, to bring people in that can support them. And then also it's hard to make a change individually if your environment stays the same. Mm -hmm. So I think at some point it's important to pull in family. So at the beginning of my time, I think I really loved meeting with individual, like with the young people individually Mm -hmm. the most. And I still love that. But I've really grown to like um, the family work and meeting with the parents to help them you know, challenge them and push them and help them see things differently. So hmm. group is my least <laughs> favorite. Everyone laughs at me because I've been doing this for like seven years and I'm still like, oh, groups, they make me nervous. But, um, I love the individual stuff, yeah. Hmm. Got it. And I think it's a big change maker um, if you can bring in people who know you or people who you just have a lot of conflict with and can resolve some of that together. I just see big yeah, steps I happening. Mean- that's awesome. Given how different their group counseling is from individual counseling and all the variation between that, mm-hmm. do you find it even more differentiated in the groups themselves where do you have to approach certain groups differently than others or maybe have an individual oh or a relationship focus? Yes. And I think the group, so the group work I do, um, well, we do daily, like afternoon groups for the young people where they're, the people who are at the shelter at the same time do like some kind of therapeutic group. But the biggest... Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest one that I'm a part of is our family groups on Wednesday nights. So all of the young people who are at the shelter and whoever they uh, is their family at that moment come. And then people who are in their aftercare and their families come. So it's a big group of people. It's not a closed group. So there's different people every week um, and it shifts. And so you definitely kind of have to take a pulse of the group and what's going on and how, where people are at with kind of the group process and trusting each other and yeah. speaking. Um, so it's really interesting. And, and it is, I will say, I've grown to like that a lot more over time. Um, but it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, and I think so many people, so many times I have to just step back and let people learn from each other's wisdom, but mm-hmm. it's like, it's a really cool thing to witness. It's amazing. Do you feel like your background preparing for therapy has given you all the tools you need, or do you sometimes find you're in situations where you've had real hurdles as far as getting a group to talk to each other and facilitating that conversation? Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, the group, like we always say, the group goes where it needs to go. Like sometimes people are just not like you might have a group of people who are just in a place where a group therapy session isn't what's helpful, but they're coming to it because, you know, we ask them to as part of the program and right. people aren't in a place to really share their stories with each other. Or maybe some somebody is really in that place. And then that really is scary to another person because they're like, I don't want to cry and get emotional in front of all these people. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. this is a little nuts. Like, so, yeah. And sometimes the group just needs to be a surface level thing where we talk about strengths our families have and other times people need to share more than that so it's kind of my training um prepared me for like the knowledge part of groups but I think um groups is its own like such a different dynamic um because there's so many different pieces than individual that it's so many um, moving pieces and what you talked about with people being at different places as far as their willingness readiness to get into all of the emotional issues they would need to talk about uh yeah for sure I, I imagine for me that would be really hard to manage yeah, so we try to start off kind of in a way that's like not very threatening. And then people, you know, go and we always tell people go as far as you want to go. Like don't this is not a if somebody next to you is feels like they want to share something that's deep and you don't feel like it then, you know, pull don't do that. Like do what's mm-hmm. comfortable for you. That's the whole point of group is, you know, get something out of it, not push you further than you want to go. But I think group is a really powerful thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sure. For people, you know, just to hear each other's wisdom and you might not feel like sharing, but someone else might have had a situation similar to you. And to hear them kind of speak about that as can be, you know, really powerful or healing. And to know that you're not alone in your struggles. Yes. I think that would be really powerful. 
Yeah, and that's kind of what people end up saying at the end of every group. They're like, someone inevitably says, like, man, I didn't realize there was other families out in Nashville that had the same issue, or I didn't realize other people Mm -hmm. were having this, you know, it it takes away some of the loneliness of what's going on, or some of the isolation of feeling like, oh man, what's wrong with my family, you know, or what's wrong with me? So it's kind of a cool cool thing that groups do. Do you feel like that's progress in and of itself when people do just take a step back and realize they're not alone and that other people struggle with the same things? It's not anything abnormal or outside of just natural being a human. Yeah. I think since it takes away some of like the shame of it or some of the um, like isolation of it, people, it kind of empowers people to do something about it too. Cause I think it's like, if you're living under like this conception that man, this is only happening to me and what's wrong with us. It's hard to like, it's hard to get energy around doing something, but if mm-hmm. it feels like, Oh, we're all working on this or you're working on this too. It, it kind of, it creates like an accountability, but it also kind of just creates a, um, like some kind of an energy, I think, and I see in people that, sure. oh, this is something people we inspiring can each work other. on. Like, yeah. So that's kind of a cool thing. So when I had my brain injury, I, you know, I was going to like brain therapy with meeting with all these professionals, but they also stuck me in group counseling. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was one of the people who was like, I am not ready to deal with <laughs> And so, um, you know, a lot of people were going around expressing their anger with what they were going through. And I was just like, I just want to be happy, you know, like, um, so it's kind of funny, like thinking back and and knowing, you know, for me, it was a very uncomfortable experience, but I'm sure if I had continued going and maybe would have gotten something more out of it. And for some people, a group just isn't what they're going to benefit from, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and I definitely can respect that. Some people come to the groups for the couple weeks that they are supposed to, and then they're like, See ya. And then some people come back for years afterwards when they really were done after six weeks. So I totally mm. get that too. Some people just aren't, group setting isn't what's the most you know beneficial for them. Well, I, I kind of want to hear more about, you said something like it's hard for um, when the environment doesn't change, it's really yeah. hard to kind of help somebody. So could you talk more about that and maybe give it some examples of, of how family yeah. therapy has kind of helped? For young people specifically, since I work with um, people who are 13 to 17, there, you know, you don't have a lot of control um, over some things at that age, mm-hmm. but you can, you have a lot of control over how you work through that situation or how you respond to it or how you participate in it, but you don't have a lot of control sometimes over the place that you live or who you live with or the control over how your parents act or things like that. Um, right. So I think sometimes you can come, you can go work on yourself and that's a really powerful thing and I think it gives a lot of tools Um for how you can be okay in a situation that doesn't change, if that's if that's your situation. But um, if there's differences we can make to an environment that somebody's in, like if I come to counseling, but the the real relationship between my mom and and me is just really difficult, and and my mom's not willing to work on things, it's really hard for a situation to change if my mom's going to continue making the same choices, and I'm working on, you know, I'm trying to work on my end of it, but my environment hasn't changed. My mom's not willing to work on things. She's not willing to talk about stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. It's hard to kind of create change within that. So, so trying to involve as many willing participants as possible is it just helps to, um, you know, it helps to create change if everybody that's in the situation is willing to work on it as well. Right. That, that resonates with me for sure that, you know, in any relationship, Mm -hmm. all the moving pieces sort of have to, there has to be a willingness to, work where and I can see how that would be especially challenging with groups where the more moving pieces there are the greater the chance one of them is going to be repeatedly making those same choices or produce an environment that's not changing and I also really believe um 
at the same time is that I also really believe that like, um, so I guess it's kind of called systems theory where like we exist in these systems, whether it's like our family system or our school system and all those systems okay. interact with each other. But, um, so like if, if, and you are a part of a system, right? So I'm a part of all the systems that I'm in. And if I'm making mm -hmm. a change, like a part, a change in one part of the system creates change in other parts of the system. So if I'm choosing, even if my mom's not going to change to interact with her differently when things are difficult, like I'm creating a change in the system in some way because she has to respond differently because I'm now responding differently. Right. So it kind of is, it's kind of empowering in a way that's like, you know, with young people, I think even if you don't, even if you think at the beginning, my mom is never going to do anything differently or my principal is never going to step up and stop the bullying or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, if you can interact differently with the situation, I think that's a really important thing. And it's still worth talking about because, you know, that's, if nothing else, you're getting some support and some coping skills for it, even if it's yeah. not changing. But also if you change your, you know, if you change your involvement, then other things have to domino. Yeah, that's cool. It's, it's like on one thing. hand, the group is challenging in that there are so many, so many moving pieces. But on the other hand, just one moving piece as part of that system is changing the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, yeah, therapy is totally one size fits all then, right? Being sarcastic. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, I don't know how to, that's not what I was saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, that would be really great, but it's totally, it's totally not. I yeah. think if you ever feel like you know what you're doing as a counselor, then you probably need to take a step back and reexamine yourself. Because there's not a one, there's nobody is the same. Every mm -hmm. person is different. So there's not a way with your to colleagues. Is that a, is that a common thread where you're often reevaluating how to handle things? Oh my goodness. Yes. I think, um, it's a good, like, I feel like I have good support at my job and I hope other, you know, professionals feel the same way, but being able to bounce things off each other and say, Hey, I really don't know, you know, where to go or I'm not really sure what to do. I mean, we're, even counselors are human beings. We're not perfect people or it doesn't mean our lives are perfect because we're in the, that field. Um, right. So like talking to each other and bouncing things off and saying, you know, any thoughts about this? I think we often say, man, I don't know where to go with this. And I think that's a good thing because that means we're really examining and thinking about how to respond to that situation individually and not, okay, mm -hmm. depression means I do this with you and then we do this next and then you tell me this mm -hmm. and then, yeah. then you're going to be better. Like that's, never going to work. So I think re-examining and really questioning is like a healthy part of being in the field. Do you see any trends um, after, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. So ha do you, have you seen a certain issue that keeps coming up with youth or, or with families? Um, let's see. I think, I think with families, it's a real, there's a lot of like understanding that needs to happen. And when people understand each other better, um, or understand where people are at develop developmentally mm. better, um, it creates like a whole different way of interpreting things. I think parents, um, things feel really personal because you had this little tiny baby that needed you for everything and then pretty soon they're mm -hmm. a teenager and they have different thoughts and ideas and are figuring out things and um, becoming independent, which is completely appropriate. Um, but it feels really personal and hurtful sometimes to parents. And then young people feel really, um, I think they often feel really misunderstood and it's because what they're doing is developmentally appropriate. Like they're exploring their boundaries. They're figuring things out. They're testing what the limits, like all these things are really appropriate, but parents don't understand. They feel misunderstood about it. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes yeah. just educating people on like, here's what's normal. Here's what, here's how we can respond to it. Here's how you can, you know, communicate about what's happening for you in this moment. Um, I think like, cre like cr creating a venue for that often 
makes a lot of the other stuff um, happen more easily. Like the other conflicts or the other situations go more smoothly if people can understand each other's intentions like around sure. it. Yeah. So understanding is a huge part of just setting up an environment where therapy can work. Yes. Like we live in a world with a lot of stimulation right now. And I think um, like constant access to each other mm-hmm. has created a lot of um, issues that I think I didn't even have to deal with as a teenager or definitely um, the parents, um, the generation of parents that the young people I see have didn't necessarily have to deal with. So that is, that's a whole new aspect of things. Um, just like the constant access to like, it's not like you go to school and you get bullied there and then you come home and you know, that's, there's Facebook and Instagram and I don't even know all of them, but mm. there's all those social media sites where it continues happening and people have constant access to send pictures to each other. And it's just, is a crazy, it's kind of a crazy world and there's a lot of things happening in this world. Mm. So like um, social media you're saying is sort of broadened the window for any of these issues to come up where before uh, you might have certain avenues where certain problems could arise, but now anything is sort of possible or fair game at any yeah, time. And it's, and it's always there with you too. Like if you have your phone, then you have all the issues that you're dealing with at school or interpersonally or, um, you know, it's not like, I mean, the, we even talk about sometimes with parents, it's not like you come home when the lights are on and that's a pretty like, you know, the street lights came on and that's time for me to come home. It's a very concrete rule. Now it's like, mm-hmm. well, I called you to come home and you didn't answer. And then you text me back, but I didn't have my phone and I didn't, it's like, there's so many different, it just creates a whole other level of things than it was. It's a lot more complicated and not as just clear cut and simple. It seems like with communication as it used to be. So that creates a different aspect. Sure. Are there different problems that you actually feel as if they occur more now because of the technological progress Hmm. or less? That's a good question. Um, The population I work with now is not necessarily um, what I was exposed to growing up. So a lot of, and I I think things were, um, and I was in a different area of the world, or I mean, not the world, (laughs) of the country. (laughs) I I mean, technically you were in a different area. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's true. Um, But yeah, I don't know. So sometimes it's hard for me to compare what my childhood was like or what I experienced as a teenager with what the young people I interact with are experiencing because I'm like, is this yeah. what other people my age were doing that just wasn't my experience or I don't know. Yeah, well, and so there's so many variables. It's not as if you can pinpoint technology as the cause of no. anything necessarily. Oh no, no, yeah, yeah it's Yeah, it's an entire culture shift for sure is another element, I'm sure. Yeah, I think, so. yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so I'm just curious. Going back to the systems theory could you kind of give an example? Let's say there is a kid who's dealing with bullies at school. What could they do? Um, or even like that happens at work. I mean, it doesn't yeah. really change. You know, even as adults, we, we still encounter bullies. So what what would you say to that person? What could they do if they can't change, you know, their boss or the people around them? What could they do to help that situation? Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of people give advice about bullies. Like, well, just ignore them or you know, there's a lot of things people say about it, but it's really like kind of situational. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, and it's different, you know, also again, it's different now too, because it's not just in person and school. Um, But I think um, involving somebody is usually a really good idea. And people are often really nervous about doing that because it's like, you know, if you tell somebody, then you're a snitch and then Mm. that becomes worse. But um, being alone in it is really hard too. And I think can really um, result in a lot of, um, like real hurt and and depression and it can get Mm -hmm. it can get really like lonely to be in something by yourself especially when if it's 
when it's something that's by yourself and people aren't treating you very well. Um, so I think like talking, there's a lot that, um, there's a lot that schools can work on doing to support a young person that doesn't necessarily mean they're calling me and my bully into the office and saying, you guys need to, you know, work it out here. It's like, you know, you can talk about other options like, um, sitting in a different place in class or having an assigned role in class that means that you're, you know, up or doing something or having a different lunch or switching to a different dismissal or so it's, there's other things to do besides just like having to have a confrontation with someone that can be really intimidating. So, mm-hmm. and that's different for different schools, but I think involving somebody and even like your school guidance counselor and saying, I'm having an issue with somebody. I don't feel comfortable to tell you about it, but what are my options here? What can I do? Um, I don't, it's hard for me to come to school. Like those are things someone needs to know about how you're doing. Cause that's, that can be really scary. Um, and it depends on the kind of bullying, I guess I'm thinking of it in the traditional, like kind of mocking somebody sense, but if it's physical or things like that, that's also really serious. Um, mm-hmm. but I think telling somebody what's going on and even if you don't feel comfortable saying the people's names or saying when it's happening, um, just kind of seeing what your support can be. It seems like that's a huge theme of just feeling less alone, finding a way yeah. to not be alone. In yeah. Your letting someone in. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. And then, um, ta- you know, identifying people who or seeing if there's people who you can connect with that is like helpful or meaningful. Um, you know, separate from those people so that you feel like you have a connection that's, you know, that's a good one. It's not, it's not good to feel like, you know, all of your connections to people are ones where they're hurt, they're hurtful towards you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I kind of, um, we got an email from a listener who is going through a, kind of a rough time and just feeling very alone. So since we're talking about that, I thought I'd bring it up, but, um, with her, her situation, it's about anxiety and struggling with people, not think, not, Um, believing that it's real and so Mm -hmm. she asked this question how can I get people to understand that my anxiety is real and not going away for good anytime soon Mm -hmm. um what would you say to her I I I'm not a medical expert so I thought I'd go to one (laughs) yeah I think that's that's really hard because I think people can be like just don't worry like it's okay everything's you know like they can minimize I think it feels like people are minimizing sometimes anxiety or I mean a lot of things too Um, a lot of different things can feel like people are minimizing them, but anxiety I think is one where if someone doesn't have anxiety, it's really hard for them to understand anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like, um, just, you know, just don't worry about it. Just let it go. Like it'll work out. And it's, people don't realize that it can become something where, um, it's really hard to move your thoughts in a different direction. Um, and it's really hard to like have control over how your thoughts are happening about something. Um, I think it's a really hard thing. I, I mean, it's a, if there's access to counseling and having someone who really understands it be able to explain it to family members, mm-hmm. um, that is really helpful, obviously. But I think, um, yeah, that's a really lonely feeling to feel like people are um, not understanding you. And I think also connecting, if you can connect with people who you feel like do understand or are good listeners, yeah. that's really important. Um, but I think, I think um, helping people understand what your experience is, is if you can kind of describe it to them in a way that's like, um, that, that kind of lets them know it's not, it's not a choice that you're making. It's a feeling that you're having. Um, like I'm not choosing to continue to think about this and worry about it and wonder if it's going to happen or worry about it happening. I'm not, it's, it comes up in my mind even when I'm trying for it not to, or even when I'm trying to distract myself and, um, like kind of describing how it's happening. That's, um, that's beyond your choice. 
Hmm. Help some, I think help sometimes helps people realize that it's not, it's not just a, well, just stop worrying about it kind of thing. And more of like a, Oh, this is really hard for you. And even if they don't get the anxiety, they can get that for you. At least it's really a struggle. Um, and then maybe they can partner with you in how to work with it instead of telling you to kind of move past it. And I think also if you can identify things that would be helpful for you, like it makes me more anxious when you keep talking about the situation because then I can't stop thinking about it. Or it makes me feel really anxious when you do this. Can you do this differently? Like if you can give people a cue, sometimes they really want to help and they don't know how to. Yeah. So giving them something that would be helpful for you to do instead or for them to do instead, sorry, um, can really be good because they're like, oh, I just didn't know what to do differently. So I'm just trying to tell you to not do it. I'm trying to tell you not to be anxious instead of telling you, yeah. you know, what you need to hear. So instead. maybe they can still help you even if they can't quite wrap their head around the anxiety yeah. necessarily. It, right. By, uh, by, by telling them what would be more helpful for them to respond with instead of stop worrying or mm-hmm. I don't understand or whatever yeah. their response is that that's more hard. It seems like a lot yeah. of the challenge is comes down to the core of how we empathize where it seems people and at no fault of theirs necessarily, but it seems people have a hard time empathizing with things they don't understand. And so oh, something that's relatable to them that they can almost imagine seems it's much easier to have that empathetic reaction of sort of feeling what someone needs rather than just saying, Hey, snap out of it. And I see this every day with my relationship with my girlfriend, where we have friends who might struggle with one thing or another. And if it's uh, an issue surrounding body image, maybe she's a lot better at uh, empathizing with someone and really understanding, whereas it's a little confusing to me. And if it's some OCD tendency or someone having a lot of trouble getting hung up on, um, perfectionism in some sense, I can really mm-hmm. relate to that. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's almost it's like, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, and I guess, uh, I try not to admonish myself for not relating to the things I don't, but I, I think it's been really helpful just to sort of understand how that works, where you're, you're going to have some things that are easy to have empathy for or harder to have empathy for. And it's not because you're a good or a bad person in either case. It's just, we really can empathize with what we can relate to. And we can't control what the people around us, um, like I can't control how much empathy you would have towards me, you know, not feeling great about my body when I'm eating or Mm -hmm. like I, you know, and that doesn't mean anything about either of us, but, um, but I can control like when you say to me like, Oh dang, you must've been hungry how that makes me feel is really like, Oh my gosh, did I eat too much? Like if, so I can control like what I can do is say, Hey, when you say that, it makes me feel like really nervous about what I just, like it makes me kind of go into some anxiety. Like, can you not make observations about how much I'm eating or can you like like, say it differently and just say like, are you still hungry or can I get you anything? Or, you know, can you say it differently to me next time? Especially for like a parent, you know, who would be providing the food. But you, what you can say is give someone a a specific tool. Cause while you are saying, I don't know how to have empathy for that or what, no, not that you don't know, but, um, it's difficult for me to think about that. You know, like you could Mm -hmm. understand, oh yeah, I can totally not say that phrase anymore. I can totally interact with you differently around that specific thing. So giving someone a a, a concrete way to do something can be really helpful when, um, when it's a, when they don't have a good grasp of it or a lack of understanding. So it seems like it's just, you're, I love this because you're just giving really practical communication skills. So it seems like a lot of times when there's conflict between people, maybe somebody who has an issue and somebody who can't understand that issue, it really comes down to communication. Yeah, there's a big, like, so one thing I use a lot, which I think is probably, you know, used a lot in the field, but 
it's like when you, I feel, can you, like, so when you, you know, say this to me, I feel really anxious. Can you say it this way next time? Like, so you're giving a concrete, you're not saying you always say this and it makes me so mad. You're saying when you do this, it affects me like this. And I'm just wondering, like in the future, it'd be really helpful for me if you could do this thing a little bit differently. And here's a way that's helpful for me. So you're kind of like, you can expand on it as much as you want, but you're basically saying when you blank, I feel blank. Can you, you know, blank? It's really an effective way to help people understand you without mm-hmm. raising a lot of um, like defenses. Yeah, so, I like that. Yeah. So one thing I think that I've learned as I've gotten older is to be careful with who I share, you know, those those harder parts for me, you know, or those darker parts of me. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you try to teach um, your the clients that you have is, hey, don't choose to share this really difficult issue with somebody um, if you know that you're going to, you know, receive a certain feedback that's not going to make you feel so great. Um, is that something that you kind of go over with them or no? Yeah, it's a hard. Um, I don't I don't necessarily bring it up unless they're um, mm-hmm. noticing issues around it because I don't want to create a thing where I'm saying like I don't want to create any shame around stuff like, mm-hmm. hey, maybe don't talk to people about your, you know, depression like you're sharing <laughs> too much. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't want to create any shame around like, oh, like I shouldn't tell people about that or like um, but I do talk to people about um how people respond when they're able to talk about parts of themselves or um, if they're noticing like nobody talks to me anymore or nobody like nobody wants to hang out with me. Then then we talk about what that looks like and how they're interacting with people. And then that kind of usually goes back to something where um, people are nervous or intimidated or don't know how to respond or things like that. So then we can kind of talk through practically like what feels comfortable to share and how, what do people look like when you say that or how do they respond when you say that or, you know, cause it can kind of mm-hmm. be a thing where if they're noticing issues around that, then we can kind of talk about it and identify, you know, that might be more than what they're ready to hear or that might be, you know, who can you talk to that about? And maybe it's not that friend at school. thing <laughs> sounds like that's yeah. a lot for them or, you know, mm-hmm. so, but there are definitely things where um, like some young people, I think boundaries are a thing that you're exploring when you're in the age group that I work with. So I think that can kind of be a thing too, where sometimes, you know, even with me, they'll walk in and tell me everything about their whole life, the first session, and then want to hug me afterwards. And I'm, you know, so that's, there's one boundary there, or they'll come in and like, you know, look at me and be like, I'm not talking to this lady. Like, who the heck are you? (laughs) So there's like a lot of different, there's a lot of different um, boundaries that people have. Um, So it's kind of like navigating what works for you. And sometimes your boundaries have to be really high. And sometimes they need to be low because you really need to connect with people. So people, you know, do things to help themselves and sometimes don't realize that it's not really helpful <laughs> or not <laughs> yeah. helpful in every situation. So it's kind of helping them explore what's working and what's not and then making a different choice around it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but oh, that, yeah, it's kind of like the, a, yeah. The boundaries discussion just makes me think about the movie What About Bob? I don't know if you've ever seen that. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Murray. Yeah, <laughs> it's a so pretty good. pretty amazing movie, but uh, I can see how that would be uh, really really tricky as far as what you tell people about boundaries because there is that um, balance between you don't want to promote any shame around an issue, but pragmatically mm-hmm. there are probably times not to share or people with whom yeah. not to share. Yeah, and I think um, talking about like. Who is who? What it like? What it looks like to have someone who's safe enough to sh- like? So creating a conversation around it that's not necessarily in the situation. So 
just saying like how do you decide who's a safe person to talk to and like what kind of characteristics would they have and how would you know when to talk to them about because I do want people to talk you know I don't want them to be alone in things but it is a matter of like how do you decide who's a safe person to talk about that too like what are things that you would want them how would you want them to respond and you know how would you know if um how would you know if it's someone you can trust and what does trust look like in that you know so it's kind of helping them explore that so they can think about that when they go into interaction instead of saying like hey stop walking into a room and being like is anyone else in here depressed because i'm depressed you know so it's more about helping them make a decision what would you tell someone who feels like they found their people or people who meet the criteria they need to be comfortable sharing with but are still held back maybe by stigma or just by a fear that's inherent or internal and cultural even around sharing Mm -hmm. that they might be depressed or have some other condition yeah absolutely i think um like just like the what about bob movie it's like baby steps so you don't have to like <laughs> so if like i identify laura as someone who i could be like hey, i really want to talk to laura about you know i've been having a really hard time lately with um you know anxiety and i really want to talk to laura about it but i don't know how she's going to respond i'm not really sure um but i can say "Ooh, i had a rough day yesterday and see if she's like oh okay or if she's mm-hmm. like oh man tell me what was going like so you can kind of take you can say well, I'm going to start by just telling her, man, I didn't sleep a lot last night. Yesterday was tough like, and seeing what that looks like. And then I can just kind of gauge each response as whether I want to keep going or whether mm-hmm. I feel like I need to just say, oh, you know, I just didn't sleep good. It's okay. And, and pull back. So it's like you don't have to make this 100% decision. You can kind of mm-hmm. say, let me just see how this feels. And I'm going to start just by saying this thing. Um, I had a young person at the shelter who had some really – um, she she had a lot of social anxiety, so talking to people or initiating a conversation was really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, so our challenge, like every day, we'd have a different challenge. So the first the first day we did a challenge, she was just going to go up to people who were sitting together and say, "Hey guys," like those were the two words she was going to say is "Hey guys," um, and then she was going to decide what to do after that. So it was cool. Like by the end of her time, her two weeks, like she was able to say more sentences, and and that's okay. You know, like we're just doing little steps to get to a place we want to get to. So it was cool though, to see, um, you know, you don't have to go in a hundred percent. I want to talk to somebody, but I don't know how then just, you know, say, Hey, and then yeah. see if you want to say, you know, awesome. I love that. Yeah, I so love kind of just like, approaching hey. it, uh, in that, with that practical ability to realize it's not all black or white. You don't have to jump right in the deep end, but there is a healthy Mm-mm. way to, to ease into it. And I like that, that sort of that spectrum of openness reflects the spectrum of disorder someone could be struggling with that wherever they are, there's, you know, there is a way to move in that direction of openness at a pace that's appropriate. And with someone who feels comfortable. Yeah. What are some of the um, more rewarding parts of your job? Like, what do you, what do you, gets you really excited about what you do? Cause I know you love counseling. I do. Yeah. I love, and I love, um, I really love the place I work too, so I think that makes a big difference. Um, but I think um, I think we celebrate a lot of successes, um, and those look like different things to everybody. But you know, like like I was saying a minute ago, saying "Hey guys" to someone felt like a really big success, and we like totally celebrated it. So I think it's like, but I think the biggest thing is just connecting with people. Um, mm-hmm. I think feeling like I've made a good connection with somebody is um, the biggest part of my job. And then being able to witness any things that they do, um, any decisions that they make or any steps that they take to improve things is hugely rewarding. But I think even if it's a situation where, you know, steps aren't really the thing that needs to happen at that 
point and it just needs to be connection. That's mm-hmm. hugely rewarding for me because a person has chosen to trust you or a person has chosen to trust a piece of something to you. And that is just an incredible thing because I think um, healing happens when you feel connected. And so mm-hmm. just being able to connect, I think, is a major, major thing. And that's a huge success um, and a huge step to take. So, yeah. Um, I totally yeah, agree. that's a big thing for me. I think yeah. connection is just so vital to not only healing and overcoming any disorder someone struggles with, but fulfillment in life, really. Um, did those rewards really draw you to therapy? Or was um, it uh, was it just sort of something you happily found? Yeah, it was kind of something I happily found. So I was thinking about that the other day, and I think I grew up, um, my parents were always kind of like, um, and I didn't realize till later on, but we're always kind of doing things to like connect people and bring people together. And like, you know, I would, I think back and there was people always at our house for holidays and things that I'm like, kind of now mm-hmm. I'm like, why were they there? And then I, you know, thinking about, it, I'm like, they really probably didn't have anywhere else to go or, so I think it was kind of a part of what I was taught growing up. But, um, really in school, one of my friends was like, I think you'd like social work. Like you should take the intro class. And I was like, I don't know really what that is. And I took it and I just kind of fell in love. It kind of aligned with what my values were. And so, um, yeah, I, I really kind of happily stumbled into this field. Um, and it kind of just like made sense for, um, kind of who I am and yeah, what I, what I want to do. So it, it kind of happened perfectly. And then I think I've stayed with it for so long or not so long, but my whole career so far, um, because it continues to make sense for me. And, um, and yeah, that those connections and those little successes are really valuable to me. So I think it you know mm-hmm. makes me continue doing what I do. So I think when you work in a service industry, um, it can be really easy to get jaded because you're working mm-hmm. with people who have big issues and, and sometimes difficult people. Yeah. Um, how do you keep yourself from becoming jaded? And because you seem to still have a s- genuine love for what you do. I think um, I think the hugest thing in my whole um, understanding of people and my whole career has been understanding trauma. Um, and not like trauma doesn't have to be like a major abuse or it doesn't have to be like a huge house. Like it can be small things that we experience that feel out of our control or times when we didn't feel safe or, um, comfortable. So I feel like understanding how trauma impacts people and understanding how, um, we experience traumas throughout our life has really helped me understand, um, or helped me learn how to try to understand how, how people think and why they make the decisions that they do. Hmm. So like it's created the curiosity in me. And instead of um, being like, Oh, you know, I don't know, I guess instead of kind of having a more jaded or kind of condemning mindset, it's really made me be curious about people and want to really understand what, what the choice that they made. Like um, I think I'm trying to think of like when I was in school and people are like, Oh, what field do you want to work with? And, I'd be like, oh, I don't think I could work with sex offenders. I could never work with people who abuse kids. I could never work with, like, there's all these things that you're just like, oh, I don't understand people. And um, mm-hmm. But when you really think about what they've experienced that has led to their decisions to do any of those things, it really creates a curiosity instead of a kind of a condemnation kind of mindset. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm trying to say, like, it helps me be curious about people and not... Um, Judge, judgmental. Yeah. yeah. So I think well, that's, that's created a way for me to be... Um, open-minded about it but obviously i'm not perfect and there's times where i'm just like ah but yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely framework of understanding things yeah i imagine anyone would sometimes fall into judgment on some level that i think is Mm -hmm. part of our nature but i think that's really cool and something that's weighed 
heavily on my mind at many times. I've even talked with Laura about this, about just sort of the idealistic question of whether there are things that are just irredeemable, where people end up certain ways with certain conditions, disorders, doing certain things, and everyone in some ways is a product of their experiences. So uh, of course, you're not always able to, but channeling that curiosity about how someone got to where they are rather than, um, I guess, writing them off is is a skill mm-hmm. I'm trying to hone. And it's still a question that is central on my mind, you know, because there are definitely situations where I find myself thinking this is a this is an irredeemable person. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing uh, monologue, I guess, for me. So I just think it's fascinating that that's been an experience yeah. for you as a therapist. And being curious about it and um, wanting to understand it also, like, can inform how you interact with it. So it doesn't mean, like, well, I understand that because all these things happened to you or you experienced all these things or this stuff was all difficult. Um, now that I understand it, like I, you know, then we'd kind of dismiss it and we move on, but it means oh, that's, I have to take that into consideration with how we interact. Like if, you know, how I, how much I can um, let the pieces of myself engage with those pieces of yourself or, you know, whatever that looks like, I think it's kind of different in yeah. every situation. But, um, so like letting that inform kind of how we work with people. How do you navigate that? Because I know that's a that's a challenge, right, as a therapist of how mm-hmm. open are you? And I know a lot of therapists take the sort of hard line approach of they're not going to reveal anything about their own uh, thoughts, struggles, past when in therapy. Uh, where do you sort of fall on that? I think whatever feels, um, I don't like necessarily have a hard and fast rule, but I often, fe- I feel most often like, um, there's not a lot of times where what I share is going to benefit the person I'm sharing it with. Like I have to be really mm-hmm. careful about whose needs am I meeting? Is it, am I meeting my needs by connecting with this person by telling them this piece of myself or am I meeting a need that they have to, you know, to feel connected with? So a lot of times it's about um, kind of saying, can I use this as a teachable thing and then share it with like a lot of um, vagueness <laughs> or, or am I doing something because I feel like I need to connect because my story's similar and I want to say, yeah, 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 that's kind of what I experienced too. So a lot of it is I don't share very often, but it's more about um, if it's going to be beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of a weird thing to like go talk to somebody or for some people it's weird. Other people, they don't really, it's not weird at all. But for some people, it can be hard to go share a lot with somebody who you don't feel like you know anything about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for some people, it's important to feel like they connect with. But I think Everybody in the world has such different experiences, but we all have like a lot of similar emotions. So you might say like, hey, um, you know, I really, did you ever feel anxious? Like, was that ever a problem for you? Or did you ever get bullied at school? And I can say, instead of being like, yes, I was bullied from like eighth grade till I graduated or something, I could say, hey, I really know what it feels like to feel like people don't respect me. And I totally can get that feeling. And that made me, you know, I felt really sad about that. So I'm not saying, well, actually in eighth grade, this thing happened, but I'm still saying I get that feeling and I get what you're saying. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm connecting with the emotion behind it instead of disclosing a lot about myself kind of. And giving them what would help them as well. Yeah. They don't need a lot of details about what happened to me. And um, especially if it's like something that's ongoing or still impacts me or it's hard to think about, then it's not something to share because... I think people, um, it doesn't need to be about somebody worrying about me or saying, oh man, you have a lot going on. I don't want to burden you more with what's going on with me. So it's, you know, it's really like a balance of not letting it become about you as a counselor. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I So you work with families, and I think just the nature of families and, well, just people interacting with people is we hurt each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the issues come out of that. So does forgiveness play a role in, some, in counseling? What do you think about that? Yeah, forgiveness is, is really big. Forgiveness is like a is a journey. Ooh, that's a hard one. I think um, <laughs> I think um, sometimes the biggest step that we take um, kind of in my role is sometimes it's like acknowledging that a hurt has happened or acknowledging how something has affected a person. Like, um, And then I'm trying to think of an example, but it's like sometimes um, if there was a big hurt or if there was a big wound, a lot of times it affects how you see that person's interaction with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of go into each interact in, interaction expecting that feeling again from them, and that kind of creates a pattern in a relationship that's really hard to move past. So sometimes it's dealing with an initial hurt or an initial wound um, and seeing how that has impacted the pattern of how you communicate, and then that can kind of lead to – it's the understanding again, I think, but that can kind of lead to people, you know – going towards the, the whole forgiveness thing, but, um, that's such a, yeah, that's such a process and it's such a, um, you have to be in a place where you're, you can deal with the hurt enough to hear the other person's mm. perspective of the hurt. So, um, that's definitely, a, that's definitely work that is really important because, um, you know, even to forgive, to forgive someone is kind of a release for yourself mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so that's that means you have to deal with a lot of your own feelings about how things have happened, and that's that's the journey, I think. Yeah, and it sounds like it relates even to what you were talking about with systems theory and how you would be changing. It is personal forgiveness and how you would be changing something in your one part of the system, but how that could change mm-hmm. the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So we've heard from a lot of people who just don't feel like they're getting the right treatment or even are realizing that they maybe have depression or or, Mm -hmm. or different issues and they're afraid to reach out for treatment. So what are some, one, I have two questions. One, what's the misconception that people have about uh, counseling? Um, And then the second question, um, what is counseling the only way? What are some other treatment options that people might have? Yeah, I think, um, there's definitely other. Okay, well, let me start with the first one because I'll forget. We have to, we might have to remind me in a second. <laughs> yes, like, um, I shouldn't have asked like that. <laughs> no, it's okay. I just like most of my brain is not working. I feel like. Um, so I think misconceptions about counseling can be really vast, but I think one of them is that it's really intimidating for people to start. I think talking with um, you know, myself in the past and talking with family members or friends who have thought about going to counseling or just talking about people who I've met with in therapy, I think the perception can often be like I go in and I have to just like tell my most terrible childhood memory and just dive right into this current issue that I'm having and it's really intimidating and overwhelming and where do I start is a lot of what I hear um Mm -hmm. like I don't even know how to begin talking about this I don't even really understand it or know what I'm dealing with right now I just know that I'm feeling like this um and I think like what people um could know about counseling is that it's really it's a conversation Um, and it's a person who is outside of your situation that can just really hear you. They're not hearing you through the lens of what their experience with you has been. They're not hearing you through a lens of, um, what their experiences are. They're really, uh, really work. Their job is to kind of just hear you objectively and help you look at what you're talking about objectively and 
you know, either think about it or just be able to say it or make different choices about it. So it's like you start with what feels comfortable and you go where it feels comfortable and no, no counselor should be making you go more than that. And, um, you know, as you get to know each other and establish a relationship, you'll figure out what's comfortable with how much to push and how much to ask for help and what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really just about going in and saying, I don't really know where to start, but I just been feeling like this. And they say, okay, you know, that's, you know, so you kind of just start with what feels comfortable and talk about what feels comfortable. Sure. Um, but I, you know, even talking to some family members recently, it's like, I feel like I need to talk to somebody. I just really don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to just go in there and be like, what, I have to lay on a couch and like look at ink blots or what do I have to do? I'm like, no, you literally are having a conversation. Like it's, it's a conversation. So, um, I would say that, um, right. And And I'm sure that would help a lot of people who have one idea of counseling and right. Where you're laying on a couch crying and yeah. 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 Yeah, and I do want to give a brief uh, mention of this organization, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. That last mm-hmm. night I had a phone call with a guy, Nate Shore, who is involved with them, and they provide a lot of programming as a national organization with locations across the country, whether it's therapy yes, or just awesome. education. Yeah, and uh, they also have a lot of resources that I had no idea about before talking to Nate and learning about it. So we can definitely put some of that in the show notes for anyone curious about it or anyone who finds themselves on that two-month wait list for a psychiatrist or is just looking for some kind of new resource. But uh, Devin, what would you tell someone who is just really struggling to take that first baby step who maybe is struggling to admit that they want to see someone or go to some class or do something to help themselves. Yeah, I think, I think, um, it kind of almost has to start with asking yourself questions. Like, um, I think sometimes going to counseling can mean that you think change is going to happen. And sometimes change is really scary, even if it's a positive one, or sometimes Mm -hmm. it means I know I'm going to have to talk about this and deal with this. I know I need to, but it's really scary too. So I think, asking yourself, okay, what's my biggest fear about it? What's my biggest holdback? What's keeping me from doing it? Um, and then kind of spending some time sitting with that, thinking about that. And then even if you decide to like take a, make, make a phone call and call the counselor or um, do a first appointment and just say, mm-hmm. okay, I'm nervous about this because I'm scared you're going to make me do this or I'm scared you're going to make me confront my mom right away or I'm scared you're going to make me you know, say something to my bully, whatever it is. Um, and then let that counselor respond and talk to you about how to take that in a slower way or, or, you know, say, okay, we're not, you know, when you leave here today, I'm not going to say you need to go do this or we're going to bring your mom in. Like, here's how we're going to go about it and let's create a plan that works for you and that feels comfortable. But, um, but yeah, it's a scary thing to like think about needing to work on some things, um, or think about needing to talk about some things. That's really, really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that I idea of yours of just starting with a self dialogue. And even if you're yeah. in your room alone, just asking yourself questions about how you feel. I, I agree. That's the first step is just that willingness to admit to yourself that you can help yourself and there's nothing shameful about it. There's nothing, there's, yeah. there's, there's never going to be a point where you're forced to take steps you're not ready to take. And I love, um, I love journaling. I love um, having people write things down because I think when you revisit a concern or a thought or a worry or just a, something that's that present for you, um, mm-hmm. to like look back about how you're thinking about it, sometimes it feels more objective to read it on paper and say, 
okay, come on, Devin, you can go talk to, that's like, that's a silly worry or yeah, that's a really legitimate worry. And how can I make, you know, how can I help myself move past this little hurdle or this, what feels like a big hurdle to take another step. But when you see it down on paper, instead of kind of having those cycling thoughts about it, you can help yourself um, make a plan or just make some more um, objective observations about what you're thinking. So I think that yeah. can that can be helpful too. Yeah, absolutely. And then kind of think about, so we always had this joke that was like, um, we're going to think about thinking about it. So like if I was going to deal with this thing, like what would <laughs> I do or how would I start thinking about this thing if I was going to think about it or what would I need to make myself feel safe if I was going to deal with it? So sometimes you're just like thinking about thinking about something. So, you know, you're kind of like creating a safe, like a little safe space for you to just be like, if I was going to do it, I'd do this. And then it kind of creates a little bit of movement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to bring up this question again, just to make sure we get to, because a lot of people have been asking me, but what are some types of treatment that people can oh, yeah. get? Um, it can be counseling. Or are there other sources of treatment? Yeah, there, I think there's a lot of things. Um, sometimes um, I think, well, and, and and I think journaling is a thing too, like we just talked about, but just kind of like letting yourself sit with that there is something that you want to work with and then figuring out what feels good to you. Sometimes it can be like, it doesn't even have to be something that is, um, you know, therapeutic in nature as far as like, this is meant to be a therapy for this thing. But sometimes it's something that brings you, like what when you think about what brings you calmness and what brings you peace and what brings you happiness, like, Maybe I just need to go to a pottery stu- studio and paint pottery an hour a week because I know that brings me a sense of peace and a sense of calm. Or maybe I need to just go outside and walk for 15 minutes every day. Like what brings you um, what brings you a sense of, of wellness? Mm-hmm. And then it's like incorporating that into your daily schedule and really making sure you do it. If, if it means I just need to start with taking better care of my body or, if I, or physical activity is actually shown to be really – um, important in, in improving mental health yeah. and, yeah. and things. We just on that last ear. week with, uh, oh, with okay. Laura's friend, uh, Kelly Galpin about yeah, how just those, yeah, I mean, physically and in terms of your diet, in terms of just those basic elements of wellness, sleep, there's, there's yeah. so much you can do that's productive just on that level. And I, and I think connecting with people is really important too, whether that means you look at people in the eye and say hello at the grocery store and that's your, mm. you know, connection for the day, like starting off small and just working towards you know, there might not be people in your life that you feel like are good connections, but if you work on um, just connecting, just making a connection even very surface level at first, um, connecting with people, and, and that has a lot of meaning in it too, I think, for people's mental health and wellness. Yeah, I can see how what you said about... things. Right. I can see how what you said about uh, the changing nature of how we socialize coming into play where with social media, I think that's changed the entire landscape of how connection works and Mm -hmm. changed even our whether it's necessary to connect in the traditional way so i can see how that Mm -hmm. adds a whole new layer to and maybe even makes it necessary to uh make a real emphasis on connection and not not let it be forgotten yeah yeah that's i think connection is like honestly it's like a skill and i think it's something that um yeah we have to be really intentional about in generations that that come because it's um yeah like eye contact and things like that, like communicating in a in-person way is is kind of a skill to have. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see how that um, changes and morphs over time with different generations, but it is. Yeah, interesting. I mean, not to go all black mirror, but I think for any uh, piece of technology that comes out, there's uh, a side of it where there's we adapt and it's not all rosy and there are definitely, there's some intentionality I think it, it helps to to keep focused on. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I recently, I guess a couple months ago, I went to improv class and I was expecting to improve my speaking skills for this podcast and other things. But uh, one of the things, it felt like therapy because we were forced to connect with each other, all the people Mm -hmm. in the class. We would be doing a, a game or an exercise and have to hold eye contact with somebody and have a true connection with them in a way that was sometimes really uncomfortable. And, yeah, um, vulnerable. yeah. yeah it, it felt very vulnerable. And I mean, you had to do wacky things and play <laughs> off of each other. And, and it, but it reminded me of, it's so easy to go throughout your day of just not having a true connection, not looking anybody in the eye because we're all on our devices um, or something. So, I mean, it was amazing the bond that, that class had with each other at the end, just because we had spent a full hour of, really being intentional about connecting with each other. Um, so I, it's really powerful. That's, that's yeah, awesome. I and I would, I would um, give almost anything to watch a video of you doing improv, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I would give anything for you not. <laughs> <laughs> well, Devin, thanks so much for all the advice. I think a lot of people are going to find a lot of nuggets of wisdom here that they can actually implement. And if people want to reach you, do you have any medium, social media, any preferred way? So um, Oasis Center has a 24-7 um, crisis line. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be like a call to like ask for um, mm-hmm. feedback or, or things like that too, but we can, you can, I, I can give you guys that information to put up. Um, Great. and that's also a way to reach me too. Um, so we'll definitely and, yeah, include so that in the show notes then. And yeah, once again, thank you so much and have a great one. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you so Devin. much. Thank you. Well, that was a fantastic interview with Devin. Uh, she, it's funny, she's my neighbor and my friend, but I really enjoyed going deeper with her about her job and just how she views therapy. I, I found it really helpful. Yeah, I think pragmatically there's a ton to glean from that interview where she had a really good perspective on whether it's taking that first step of talking to yourself about what you might need to do for yourself or whether you need to take small incremental steps toward opening up to someone or facing a fear. I think she had a lot of useful, actionable insights. Yeah, I I feel like she took away the smoke and mirrors that's sometimes around therapy. It sounds like this big, scary thing. And Mm -hmm. just talking to her, it's just like this very normal thing and that everybody could benefit from. So I, I really liked that. Yeah, totally agreed. And going forward, uh, we are going to keep interviewing fantastic guests, but we're really excited about the interviews we have lined up for this coming week. Our next episode is going to be a listener-based podcast, and we're really excited about it. We've got a few guests lined up, and we're going to do at least one of these listener-based podcasts because we have so many great listeners who have reached out with interesting stories, with interesting opinions, And we're excited to share that with you. And, you know, we don't know how many of these we will have, but continue to send your stories uh, at redeemingdisorder.wordpress.com. We still love to read them. And you can still uh, connect with us on Twitter. We are absolutely loving the connections we've made and found so far. Everything you've reached out with has been really valuable. Please keep doing it. We're excited to keep bringing you more podcasts. Thanks for all the love. We're feeling it and loving where the podcast is going. So we will see you next week. Where did you-